Good morning. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer, the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. I hope y'all are doing well. Lately, I have been in the Psalms, and recently I was reading Psalm 19. In this, the psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And so yesterday, early in the morning, uh, I got to sit on the back deck of our house drinking a hot cup of coffee, listening to the birds chirp, sing, and argue, even watched a couple of mallards fly over the house for a Saturday morning. It was pretty amazing. And then I heard the sound of a voice. Sir, could I bother you for a moment? I hadn't noticed that there was a convoy of Jehovah Witnesses that stopped by our neighborhood, and they were going door to door to share their message. And as I approached the small group, I noticed that they were growing more and more nervous as I got closer to them, but they were ready to go with their pamphlets. I was told uh, by Rosario, I was told that in the Bible, God tells us to trust in Him, with, uh, to trust Him with our troubles, and that His Word serves as a guide for us to navigate through the difficulty of life. At one point, Rosario even quotes 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul writes to Timothy saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it was at this point that Rosario stops and asks me what I thought about what she just told me, what I thought about God's help based on the scripture she just shared. Here I replied by asking if she knew why the apostle had written that letter to Timothy. And her answer wasn't wrong. She said, well, Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him because he's going through a hard time. And I agreed with her. And then I asked her if she knew why Paul needed to encourage Timothy. And that's where she was a little uncertain. And so we had a, a very brief Bible study, and I got to share her the context of 2 Timothy, saying that Paul was charging Timothy to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to faithfully preach his message of salvation. Because there will come a time where people will want their ears tickled by a variety of different messages. And so Paul tells Timothy, be ready in and out of season. Further, I added that just like, uh, just like uh, the creation points us to the work of God, Paul's letter to Timothy was him pointing young Timothy to the person and work of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's what Scripture is all about. And this is where things got a little awkward. 
And Rosario was very sweet, and she was very kind. And she said that she'd be happy to let one of the older gentlemen come and talk to me more about their Bible study and the, the Jehovah Witness faith. And she gave me a pamphlet, and I said, I'd love to talk to them. Please invite them back. And they power walked quickly. So here's my point. My intention is not to disparage Rosario. Like I said, she was very sweet. To a degree, everything that she, everything that she shared sounded morally good and even biblical. But all of it was far from Jesus. Here's what you need to know. Bad theology isn't always obvious. Bad theology is always masked with the pursuit of godliness, familiar language to the Christian, and even Christian value. But it cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can. Bad theology, once more, is always masked with the pursuit of godliness, familiar language, and even Christian value. But it cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can. So let me pray, and then we'll dig in our time. Father God, you are good. This morning's grace and mercy from you is a reminder that you are good. The beauty of your creation points to and proclaims your goodness. May we for a moment give you thanks, for you are good. As we examine your word through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, would you give us a heart to believe so that we would obey? Would you give us a heart to believe so that we would know Jesus better, so that we would delight in him? Would you give us a heart to believe so that we would live like Jesus, for this pleases you? Would you give us a heart to believe so that we may honor you, for this brings you glory? Lord, may the spirit of conviction awaken our souls today. May we resist apathy and complacency. Instead, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would stoke the embers of our heart with a fire of conviction, confession, and comfort. Strengthen us by your grace. Fill us with the sweetness of your word and humble us with the mercy of your goodness and kindness. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And uh, if you're new or you haven't been here in the last week or so, let me give you a quick review of what's been going on, and then we'll dive into this new chapter. 
Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, that is, is writing to a young pastor named Timothy who is leading a church in the city of Ephesus. Timothy has been tasked with confronting and correcting false teachers in the church. These teachers' message is beginning to affect the congregation, and Timothy's job is to establish order in the church so that she may flourish according to God's design. Over the last several weeks, we spent a great deal of time examining character in the contexts of prayer, the roles of men and women in the church, leadership in the church and in the home, service in the church and in the home, and then finally, the identity and message that the church proclaims. Now, here in chapter 4, Paul turns his attention to unpack the sorrow the grief, and the hardship that many churches will experience as they begin to establish order through sound teaching. And here's what Paul is ultimately going to say in verse 1. People are going to walk away from the faith. That's what Paul tells us. And that's where we begin. We begin with a sorrowful departure. So because it's a short section, we're going to, I'll read it. We're going to focus our time on the first two verses. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are Seared. This is where we're going to park. The first thing that God says to us through Paul is not only that many will depart from the faith, but that Christians should not be surprised by it. This, however, doesn't mean that when people depart from the faith that it won't cause grief. Paul is both speaking plainly and also from experience. In his second letter to Timothy, this will not be on the screen, you can just hear his words here. In his second letter to Timothy, hear what he tells Timothy about some of his friends. He tells Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul is speaking about the hurt that not only has been inflicted onto him, but the grief that he reflects on as some of his friends, particularly some of his friends who served with him in ministry, have turned their back, not just on Paul, but have turned their back on Jesus. To the Corinthians, Paul says it this way, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of my heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. When Paul talks about people walking away with the faith, it is not just a plain statement, it is also grief and hurt accompanied with this reality. And so Paul says that the Spirit expressly says that we will experience this. 
Well, what was Paul referring to when he says that the Spirit pres- uh, expressly says? We're not really sure. Perhaps the Spirit had revealed something to Paul as he pastored and planted churches, or maybe Paul is just remembering the words of Jesus where he says, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's from Matthew 24. Maybe Paul's just remembering Jesus' words. Either way, the sorrow and grief of those who depart from the faith will happen. And as Christians, not only should we be surprised, we should all the more continue to examine ourselves so that we would persevere in the faith. When we experience this, and maybe you have, you've seen friends turn away, you see yourself chasing them and pursuing them and pleading with them, but you're also challenging them. There is grief and sorrow that is accompanied with this experience. But please mark my words, or not mark my words, but please make sure that you're also examining yourself constantly, regularly so that you would persevere. And so then Paul uses this little expression or this little phrase, depart from the faith. Depart from the faith really boils down to this one word called apostasy. And we need to talk about this for a moment. Apostasy is a denial and separation from God after previously having turned to Him. It is a denial and a separation from God after previously turning to Him. In short, it is turning your back on God. And as the church, as Christians, we need to recognize that there is a difference between stumbling and maybe even backsliding and apostasy. See, when it comes to stumbling, we'll just say it that, we'll, we'll, we'll make that one category. When it comes to stumbling, Christians fall short every single day. We constantly lapse in our faith every single day by placing our trust in something or someone else. But though we stumble, we stumble forward in repentance. And we are preserved in Christ. The one who stumbles and falls does not mean that they are not saved. One cannot lose their saving faith because everyone who has received the gift of faith is preserved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it this way in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You are just not that strong, Christian. To stumble means that you and I still have a desire to rebel against God, but what brings us back is His mercy and grace. Praise be to Him. Apostasy, however, this is the individual who doesn't stumble or fall. This is the individual who denies God, who denies God by turning his back on Him. This is the one who has said they're a Christian, but rejects and forsakes the Christ of Christianity. And so what is the result of apostasy on the last day? That Jesus will deny them. That is the result. 
Therefore, as the Spirit has warned us, you and I need to know people will embrace bad and false theology. People will depart from the faith. We will be grieved at their departure. We must not be surprised by it, but we must examine ourselves regularly and among one another. And so the question might be, well, why do people apostatize? There's a number of reasons. For some, you may have heard stories similar to this where it's, it's hypocrisy in the church. Hypocrisy, hurt, or abuse in the church, but particularly one of the most common ones is, is hypocrisy. And we talked a little bit about this last week where you see many individuals who say, I love Jesus, I'm just not about his church, but to deny the church is to deny Jesus. And so the thing that they are most against is the thing that they have actually become. Sometimes it's because of tragedies like abuse that the church should repent for, that the church needs to repent for. For some, it's a struggling faith with minimal to no effort in seeking God. You've seen those Christians who might say, man, I'm just wrestling with my faith, but their Bible collects dust. Confession of sin has ceased to exist. And for others, and at the very least, in the case of Ephesus, where Paul is writing to Timothy at, it's a result of bad theology. And that's what Paul is getting at. That apostasy comes from bad theology. And so Paul writes that those who depart from the faith have devoted themselves to something apart from Jesus. That word devoted means that they have not just embraced some new kind of a teaching, but they are living it out. And we've talked about this on a number of occasions. What you believe shapes how you live, and you do not have to be a Christian to subscribe to that confession. What you believe shapes how you live. And in this case, Paul provides us with at least two reasons for apostasy. The first one is demonic influence. And, and, and he couples this by saying it's because of deceitful spirits or t- and teaching of demons. One Bible translate, uh, translation just summarizes it by saying demon-inspired doctrine. So this is the first reason, uh, or this is where bad theology comes from. One of the the ways in which bad theology comes from. And so we need to talk about Satan and demons. And some of you may be uncomfortable with that. And that's okay, because we're going to do it anyway. So we need to talk about Satan and demons, because what's interesting about this is that there are certain Christians that believe a certain way about Satan and demons, and then there's this other group of Christians that believe a completely different way about Satan and demons, right? So if this is you, uh, it's because I love you. So there are many Christians who give Satan way too much credit, and as a result, believe that he lurks behind every single thing. 
You got a headache, it's because Satan's after you. You had a bad day, demons are chasing you. You sneezed, that was a demon coming out of you. You're in sin, right? That means you have a demon in you. And that's one of the more common ones that I hear. In order to justify or to explain our sin, well, it must be because of demons. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking or that kind of theology. It's like, man, Satan's behind everything. Satan is doing all these things. All right, here we go. Here's the problem with it. The problem is that, I don't know if you knew, but Jesus defeated Satan. He defeated him on the cross as he not only died for the sins of people like you and me, but in his resurrection, he put them in their place by destroying the power of death and sin on our behalf. That's literally the point of the resurrection. And as a result for the Christian, Satan and demons do not and cannot have control over anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. To say that demons or demonic influences can coexist with the believer, or let me say it this way, if one says that demonic influence or demons can coexist with the believer, then here's the question, so then what was the point of the death of Jesus? See, to embrace that kind of theology is to say that the work of Jesus on the cross was ineffective and insufficient. So we got to help Jesus out because it's incomplete. Now we got to sit on that for a moment. If we give Satan and demon way too much credit... And we're saying that there can be this coexistence, then what was the point, not only of the life, but in particular the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross? So that's one group. Then there's a second group. And these are Christians who believe that Satan and demons don't exist at all because they get uncomfortable. And those are the most fun. Because it's usually a lot of Bible nerds. It's a lot of Bible nerds uh, who don't like talking about Satan and demons. And so when you ask them about Satan and demons, they're like, yeah, 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 it's in Scripture. Anyway, let's talk about this other doctrine that I read from this article. They just get really, really uncomfortable. Here's what we need to understand. Spiritual warfare is real. It is very real today, just as it was in the days of Jesus and Paul. Satan is very real. He hates God. He hates the people of God. And he hates seeing the church flourish. And so just because some message has some godly tones to it doesn't mean we are to immediately embrace it. Rather, we are to test it. The Apostle John says it this way, Beloved, he's talking to the church, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. As Christians... The reason we need daily spiritual protection is to resist Satan. Peter says that he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
He's a liar. He has many schemes. He displays all sorts of signs and wonders to throw us off our guard. And he is incredibly crafty. And though Satan is created and limited, he is very deceptive in his theology. And he knows a lot. For instance, when you consider the garden, this is Genesis 3. Look how this chapter opens up. Now the serpent, who is Satan, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? He captures her attention with a question. He throws her off her identity with a question. And it has some godly tones to it because he's kind of quoting God. He's very theological. He is very, very crafty. We need spiritual protection to resist Satan. The second reason as to where bad theology comes from, so we have demonic influence, and then we have devout hypocrites. That sounds funny, because it is. And this is found in verse 2. Going back, so he says, they devote themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so the second reason that Paul provides for us as to where bad theology comes from isn't just from bad teachers, but devout hypocrites. Now, this is not to say that every single false teacher is demon-possessed, but I will say that they are definitely out uh, to receive gain from your destruction. We could say that. And so when it comes to devout hypocrites, it's like, okay, well, what, is, what does that mean? The first, I guess, group of devout hypocrites are false teachers themselves. False teachers uh, are hypocrites. A hypocrite, or the word hypocrite, really comes from um, theater. And that's an individual who puts on a mask and plays a role like an actor. False teachers are hypocrites in that they have one mask on so that you see one thing, but it's not really who they are. Therefore, they preach a different message. Therefore, they live in a completely different way. They are good actors, and they are all playing a part. And as a result, they are insincere liars. In other words, they preach a gospel, but it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a gospel that they themselves don't even believe. Insincere liars. A hypocrite can be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. And the idea here is that these teachers, these false teachers, are deliberately speaking lies, deceit, and falsehood. These false teachers know what they say isn't true, it's not good. And it's not godly, but they say it in a way and they do it anyway because people's ears in the church will be tickled by it. So if they can sprinkle a little bit of godliness over this, sprinkle a little bit of spirituality over it there, they know that some people's ears will have their attention because it sounds 
true. And so they are insincere liars. Paul gives something else regarding these hypocrites. They're insincere liars because their consciences have been cauterized. That's the word we get from the word seared. Cauterized. See, for false teachers and many who think they're Christians, their consciences are cauterized. Well, what, is, what does that mean? The word cauterized can be used in a variety of uh, context, but one of the uh, ways it can be used is it's, it's a medical term uh, where through a burning instrument, in order to stop bleeding, a wound is burned. In doing so, the nerves have been deadened and the skin is no longer able to feel pain. If you're like, oh my gosh. The best way I can remember cauterized, I think of two things. One, it's this Western with Clint Eastwood. And I can't remember if it's the good, the bad, or the ugly, uh, but I think it is, and maybe it's not. Anyway, there's this one scene where Clint uh, gets an arrow shot at him, and it's up on his left shoulder. And he knows he needs to get the arrow out of his shoulder. And, uh, but he also needs to close the wound, otherwise he's going to continue to bleed. And so good old Clint, right, busts out one of his bullets, puts gunpowder on uh, the arrow, lights that sucker and shoves it through the wound and it cauterizes that area. He cuts it off from it bleeding and so he can continue fighting the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's one. You might be like, yeah, I love Westerns. My favorite, however, is from Predator 2 with Danny Glover. And it's where Danny Glover has taken the Predator's uh, like disc and cut off the Predator's arm. Some of you may remember this. This is in the early 90s. Didn't do so well at the box office. And, uh, and so he's in a bathroom doing first aid on himself, the predator, that is. And he's like getting all sorts of stuff ready to go. And his arm, his left arm is missing. And it's bleeding that green ooze that he normally does. But he needs to stay in the fight because predators are warriors. And Danny Glover is making his way down the building to get to the predator. And he puts this piece of like burning tile on his left arm, cauterizing that so he can stay in the game and still lose to Danny Glover. Right? Like, that is a wonderful view of uh, a wound being cauterized. I'm sure many of you don't care, but that's the first thing that came to mind when it came to, oh, what would it look like? Oh, Clint Eastwood and the Predator, of course. Right? <clears throat> I digress. The idea here, right, is that these false teachers, their consciences have been cauterized. Well, what does that mean? Well, the same way people cauterize a wound to stop the bleeding, the same thing can happen to the human conscience. See, the more we deliberately sin, the less pain and conviction we begin to feel. Until finally, we're all dead to that feeling. You maybe have seen it where you're in sin, you didn't get called out, lightning didn't strike, Nothing happened. Okay. You come back to it again. Maybe nothing happened. Conviction is there, but maybe you justify it. Come back to it again. Conviction is less. Feeling is less. Until eventually, it is the way in which you live. And your conscience has been seared. One commentator says it this way. The grim sequence of events in the career of the false teachers has now been revealed. 
First, they turned a deaf ear to their conscience until it became cauterized. Next, they felt no scruple in becoming hypocritical liars. In other words, they didn't push back on it, they owned it. Thirdly, they thus exposed themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Finally, they led their listeners to abandon their faith. It is a perilous downward path from the deaf deaf ear and the cauterized conscience to the deliberate lie, to the deception of demons, and the ruination of others. Where does apostasy come from? In a word, hypocrisy. That's where it begins. That's where it begins. Therefore, as Christians, we must guard our consciences so that we remain sensitive to our sin, so that we would repent and pursue righteousness. We must not wound our consciences by embracing or excusing sin. See, one who grows comfortable with sin runs the risk of living as a hypocrite. The word living is specific. In other words, they have become the thing that they didn't want to become. They have become the thing that they're so upset about others being. They have become a living hypocrite. And thus they run the risk of severe danger and even departure. Church, grace is not to be abused. Rather, it is to be received so that we would know and live like Jesus, stand firm in opposition, and quickly run to Him in repentance. Paul was adamant about Timothy keeping his conscience clear and urged Timothy to do it just as he did. In the first chapter, Paul tells Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. In other words, your motivation for correcting these false teachers is love, but do so from a pure heart and a good conscience. In the same chapter later on, Paul goes on to tell Timothy, hey, I need you to wage good warfare. In other words, I need you to fight for the gospel because that's always a good war, but do so by holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Apostasy comes from bad theology and begins with hypocrisy. So let's move on. And so what was happening in Ephesus, right? So we just talked about apostasy and, okay, well, what was happening that this was, this was becoming a thing? What was the bad theology that was causing this hypocrisy and the sorrow of apostasy? Well, the beginning of verse 3 gives us insight, uh, gives us the most insight, and, and it looks like what I call uh, sincere self-righteousness. So look at verse 3. He says, Okay, so through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. All right, here we go. Bad theology is always masked with Christian value. Bad theology is always masked with Christian value. And so here, Paul gives us two things, right? They're valuing or they're pushing self-denial and separation. Separation from the world, that is. And so in a nutshell, these false teachers were preaching against marriage and meat. 
They were anti-family and anti-fajitas, right? Like they were not about sex and steak, okay? You get the point, right? Like that's, the, that's what they were pushing. And so here's the rub. We're going to get into the weeds in a little bit, but here's the rub. There's nothing wrong with being single. There's absolutely nothing wrong uh, with being a vegetarian. There's nothing wrong with being both. The problem is when these matters are preached and imposed as essentials to the gospel. That's when it becomes a problem. And this is a common thing that happens uh, among Christians in the church. They find something that works really well for them, or they rediscover something like a doctrine, a practice, a position, and it's all good because they're passionate, and their Christian friends are even encouraging them because they're passionate about whatever the thing is. And then at some point, they begin to decide, or they decide that, man, this practice, this doctrine, this new lifestyle, it's not just necessary for Christians, it should be mandatory for all Christians to embrace these same matters. And so it's usually at this point where they begin to spread a different gospel and anyone who opposes them, they would consider them to be not a Christian. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. They wanted every Christian to abstain from sex and food. This intense practice of Self-denial and separation from worldly matters is called asceticism. Asceticism is when individuals practice and pursue intense discipline, particularly for religious or spiritual reasons. And this is where they abstain from all forms of pleasure. And they would argue that this form of self-denial and separation is essential to a person's holiness. It's essential to their holiness and their standing before God. In other words, they would say it this way, that the more holy, the more holy by way of self-denial and separation, the more you'll be accepted by God. To the church in Colossae, Paul writes about this. And he says, let no one qualify, disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensual mind. He continues, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So he's saying these individuals who are practicing these really intense forms of discipline and self-denial and separating themselves from the things of the world, man, it looks really good because you see the discipline, you might even be seeing results, and it might even be filled with some sort of a wisdom. And so Paul's saying like, you might be attracted to that, but then he wraps it all up by saying they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the point of this little portion of verse 3. A life of self-denial and separation cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can. And as a result, because asceticism can't change the heart, it goes from self-denial and self-discipline to self-righteousness and ingratitude. 
Self-righteousness is where those individuals who are, who are subscribing to these practices, they're above everyone else because they see themselves as more holy. They see themselves as better or accepted by God as opposed to others. And this isn't unfamiliar. This isn't uncommon to the church. In the context of abstaining from sex, the early church fathers of the second and third century pushed that. Like, don't get married, particularly if you're in ministry. Don't get married. Don't enjoy your, your, your spouse. Don't have sex. You're going to be more holy. You're going to be more pure. Therefore, you're going to be ready for more ministry. Don't eat meat because that's really unclean. And who wants protein? Let's just do all of these other things, right? Like, that's the idea that they really pushed. And some of this still exists in the church today through ways of legalism, but it also exists through traditions. One of my favorite ones, and I don't mean this crassly, but one of my favorite ones is when you ask a Roman Catholic, some of our Roman Catholic friends, right, particularly during the season of Lent, right, you're not supposed to eat meat on Fridays. Why? And they're just like, well, because the church says so, right? Like, no, but why don't, like the idea there is we're going to abstain ourselves from this in order to appear more holy. Is fasting a bad thing? No, absolutely not. Go ahead, fast, do your thing. All right? It's when we make these matters essential to the gospel and impose them on people that we invite, instead of self-denial, personal self-denial, we invite self-righteousness. And when we invite self-righteousness, we invite ingratitude. And that's what Paul's going to get at at the end of this section, right? These false teachers reject the good gifts of God. We'll go to that in just a minute. Therefore, you want to be disciplined? Some of you are big Jocko fans, right? Like discipline equals freedom. Hey, go. Go do it. Go be disciplined, okay? You want to abstain from certain things, like you want to fast and pursue the Lord in prayer? Do it. And a lot of these things are good. They're helpful. They're biblical. They're beneficial. Jesus fasted. Paul fasted, like, go and do it. But when it's turned from beneficial to essential, there's a problem. And the problem isn't with other people, it's with you. Therefore, your heart goes unchanged. But you grow in self-righteousness. Equally, you grow in ingratitude to what God has declared as good. A life of self-denial and separation cannot change the heart. So let's conclude with verse, uh, the second half of verse 3 into 5. So Paul says, Abstinence from food, God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We'll pause there. So in this section, Paul is now going to give us some qualifiers for good theology. We've looked at bad theology, right? And so it's almost as he's going to give us a contrast between good theology and bad theology. Bad theology comes from hypocrisy, and it has its hands in demonic influence and, and false teachers. Good theology, however, comes from thanksgiving. And it is rooted in redemption and creation. And that's what we just read. I'll read it one more time. Check it out. Here we go. He says, absence from food. God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here it is. True thanksgiving comes first from saving grace. Paul writes, those who believe and know the truth. It is those who can receive what God has created with thanksgiving because they know God. 
those who believe and know the truth. This is for those who believe that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that He was sent by God to live in our place, die for our sin, and resurrect that we might have a new life. As a result, our eyes, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are opened, our hearts are awakened, and our consciences are renewed by saving faith. Redemption is the first qualifier for thanksgiving. And so if you're that individual, it's like, man, I need to grow in thanksgiving. Here it is. When was the last time that you praised God for His work for you? Just park there for a minute. When was the last time in prayer, as you're writing in your journal, as you're just sitting in your car, when was the last time? And maybe you do this all the time, if you do praise God, but when was the last time you sat and intentionally thanked the Lord for what He has done for you in Jesus? When was the last time you sat with the Lord in communion and remembered, man, I went from orphan to son or daughter. I went from lost to found. I went from being enslaved to being redeemed. I went from living in sin to being forgiven of my sin. That's the first qualifier to thanksgiving. Redemption. The second qualifier to thanksgiving is creation. Paul continues in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul doesn't say that everything is good. Paul says that everything that God created is good. And therefore, we must understand that what God made is good. And there's always the danger of us corrupting what God has made. So in the context of this section, when it comes to marriage and meat, Paul would be saying, marriage and meat are to be enjoyed to the glory of God, but they are not to be worshipped. Marriage is wonderful, but idolatry is destructive. Fajitas are delicious, but gluttony can be fatal. Paul says, I want you to enjoy what God has created, but I also want you to make sure that you don't worship it. When a good thing becomes the only thing we have stepped into idolatry. And so, how do you know if you're enjoying God's gifts? Well, here would be the question. Can I thank God for what I'm doing right now without being ashamed of myself? Can I thank God for what I'm doing right now without being ashamed of myself? And I want you to be plain and honest with that question. Please do not try and justify your answer, particularly if you're living in sin. If you are, repent. 
Repent and return to the Lord. Don't pull what some people... Well, God will understand. No, God understands and knows that you're walking in sin. Therefore, repent. Man, if I confess it, it makes it real. He knows. So let me invite you to repent. Repent so that you would enjoy what God has declared as good. Knowing the truth about God leads us to enjoy what He has created. And this is how Paul ends this section. Good theology comes from thanksgiving to God for what He has done for us in Jesus and for what He has created. This is holy according to His Word and our praise of Him in prayer. Therefore, let us give thanks. Thanksgiving fights bitterness and self-righteousness. Thanksgiving points us back to the person and work of Jesus. Thanksgiving is not simply a theological concept. It is a way of life. One writer, I don't know if some of y'all have heard of him. His name is G.K. Chesterton. And on Thanksgiving, here's what he writes. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. His intention here is, man, may we praise God for all that He has created and declared good. May we praise Him with thanksgiving. Well, as Rosario walked away yesterday morning, I shared with my wife, Rebecca, and then I prayed for Rosario and her friends, and I hope they come back to my house so that we can keep talking about Jesus. That'll be a fun conversation. But more so, my heart was grieved because her words were so close to the truth, yet so far away from Jesus. And so my hope, my prayer for us is that we would recognize our hypocrisy so that we would repent quickly. I pray that we would take the log out of our own eye before addressing the speck in our brothers so that we would see clearly. I pray that our practices, whatever they may be, would lead to thanksgiving for all that Jesus has done for us and all that he has declared as good. And so as we close, Christian, here, here it is. What is it that you've embraced that is so close to the truth, but so far from Jesus? What is it that you've embraced that is so close to the truth, but far from Jesus? See, the Christian isn't a devout hypocrite. The Christian is a recovering hypocrite. And we recover through repentance. Turning to Jesus, continually receiving His grace as we stumble forward. Therefore, let us turn to Him today in repentance. Let us receive His grace with gladness. Let us give thanks for His faithfulness even when you and I are unfaithful. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. You didn't have to be here and yet you came. Outside of saving faith, outside of Jesus, you stand not accepted by God, but condemned. 
And there's no amount of moral good or spiritual discipline that will lead to a changed heart. However, God has made a way for you to know Him through Jesus and in so doing, receiving the gift of a renewed heart and hands that do good and enjoy Him forever as a result of God dwelling in you. So let me invite you to repent and place your trust in Jesus. Church, bad theology is always masked with the pursuit of godliness, familiar language, and Christian value, but it cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can. Let's pray. Father, may the testimony of your word prove comforting and fruitful in our hearts and in our lives today. May the conviction and care that that we've received from, from the Holy Spirit compel us towards repentance and delight in you. God, we confess that we often lack gratitude, not because you are not good, but because we have given ourselves to other things that we think will bring us worth, value, and ultimately thanksgiving. As a result, we forget you and the, G- and the work of Jesus for us. Therefore, Father, would you forgive us and align our hearts to follow your will, not ours. Give us the grace to know and live like Jesus. Father, we give you our our heartfelt thanks for all that you have done for us, all that you have given us, all that you're doing around us. You have blessed us in countless ways by your goodness, the working of your Spirit the receiving of your grace. Thank you. Holy Spirit, help us to hold fast to what is good, what is pure, and what is holy. Help us by directing our hearts to give thanks for the big, the small, the mundane, the difficult, and the beautiful. Give us a clear conscience so that we see Jesus clearly in our devotion our confession, and our worship today in an ordinary life. May our thanksgiving bring you glory and conform us further into the image of Jesus. May the words of our lips and meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.